This is an ABC podcast. And our old friend Giuseppe welcomes Glads and Pods to LNL coming to you from Gadigal land. In Australia, any number of powerful lobby groups, the gambling lobby uh, springs to mind. In Germany, the home of Das Auto, the car industry has significant heft and it's using it at the moment to try and put the handbrake on EVs. More on that a little later. And we're also taking a fresh look at that very old road, the Silk Road. But first, beloved listeners, it's a very significant moment for the Pacific because a group of enterprising law students from the region have succeeded in an important UN win, a resolution which could lead to polluting countries being made accountable for the damage they cause. We welcome back our Pacific analyst, Tess Newton-Kane, currently visiting her adopted home of uh, Vanuatu, and a very warm welcome to Siua Vakino, also known as Josh. Josh is a final year law student from Tonga and working as in a trainee role in the Tongan Attorney General's Department. He is Vice President of Pacific Island Student Fighting Climate Change. It's a group behind this historic win. Tess, to you first. There's to be a parade in Vanuatu uh, celebrating this remarkable victory. Could you give us a very short version of what has happened and we'll ask Josh to elaborate. Absolutely, Philip, and it, uh, you know, very much looking forward to hearing from Josh. As you say, this kind of started with a group of students studying law here in Vanuatu who wanted to do something um, meaningful in relation to climate change, and they they came up with a plan to seek to lobby to have the UN pass this resolution to seek an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice. And they have achieved amazing things. They've worked together. They've got the Vanuatu government on site to, to join them in their lobbying. They got approval from the Pacific Islands Forum. And just a few days ago, they got a unanimous, without vote, consensus motion passed at the UN. And so the uh, in some ways, it's a, it's a huge milestone, but as Josh will no doubt tell us, there's still an awful lot of work to do. Josh, I can imagine the massive legal wording of uh, this resolution. It'd be pretty daunting for us uh, lay folk, but in a n- nutshell, what are some of the key phrases and instructions? Well, thank you very much for that. And um so I know the legal question can be a bit intimidating, I guess, to people who aren't are very familiar with the field, uh, international law. But um, in a nutshell, uh, at the core of the legal question, as we've campaigned for since 2019, we've always wanted um, intergenerational equity and human rights at the forefront and at the core of um, the legal question. Um, so we are very proud of our campaigning because um, uh, when the Zero Draft came out, uh, these concepts were expressly mentioned uh, in the draft, and it was not diluted throughout negotiations because it, it also appears um, very expressly in the final draft as well, uh, which was what was unanimously adopted uh, last week. So um, definitely a lot of the credit does go to uh, the, the teams uh, on the ground in New York for those, um, I guess, very late nights of negotiating uh, the final text, but as well to the, our alliance members and definitely, I think, most of all, to the government of Vanuatu, who have been the uh, most influential and key country in this uh, whole campaign since 2019. Josh, did you ever think you were going to be victorious? We were very optimistic from the start, despite being um, very young and optimistic uh, students at the time. We were very positive that uh, the work we... Because at the time, it was simply just a, an idea. But that didn't slow us down or made us doubt ourselves because it was a solution that um, a lot of us did believe in. 
So uh, not to sound very boastful, but um, the, the success of this campaign did not come as a surprise. We were very positive in the work that we were doing. Um, but in terms of it being unanimous was a surprise. And it was very, we were just trying for the simple majority. Take us back to 2019 and uh, early that year, 27 final law, final year law students from across the region get together. Yeah, well, we have uh, a lot of uh, variations of um, <laughs> the story goes, but um, uh, the, the one that uh, everyone agrees on is that uh, back uh, because in uh, the University of South Pacific, uh, where they offer the LOB program, uh, there is a course there called uh, International Envir- Environmental Law. And in this course uh, were 27 students that were just uh, genuinely, uh, they just genuinely wanted to contribute to the the fight against climate change. And them being law students, um, a legal solution was the only thing they knew. So um, thus, the advisory opinion campaign was born. Um, and since then, fast forward three years later uh, to the historic win uh, last week, 29th of March, that unanim- unanimous adoption. Josh, can you clarify for me the role of the International Court of Justice, please? So uh, I'm sure uh, many are aware that the ICJ or the International Court of Justice uh, has its primary role of uh, settling disputes between countries or international organizations and whatnot. But um, they also have a secondary role, which is providing uh, advisory opinions at the request of the United Nations General Assembly. Um, and these these resolutions are often in the form of a legal question. And the one that we were pushing for was for them to outline and give the obligations of states to present and future generations um, but also through the lens of human rights. Um, and so so, when, so the role that the ICJ plays is that when they provide this advisory opinion, um, it is not legally binding, admittedly, but it is a very legally influential document because um, it, it can be used to influence how, uh, what kind of laws that countries can domesticate, then making it legally binding. So in the last few years, your group has been to, well, various international conferences and uh, you've been very busy. It must have been a challenge when you're trying to do a law degree. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, uh, that's uh, that's one thing that uh, we're very um, proud of, I guess, was uh, especially our executive committee um, now and in the past, um, being made up of 100% Law, law, not law students only, uh, but yeah, just being made made up of university students um, carrying the weight of their academic studies, uh, as well as um, a campaign, a very full-on campaign. Tess, how significant is this, in your view, for the message it sends? Oh, Philip, I think it's hugely significant. I'm really pleased to hear Josh say that he and his colleagues are proud of what they've done because they just, they should be very proud of what they've done. And certainly as a former law lecturer at USP, I am very proud of what they've done. I think what they've they've made a huge contribution to Pacific climate diplomacy overall. And we know that, that that's a very well-established field with some really big players. But I think one of the key things that they've done is they have demonstrated that from within the region, we've already seen the power of the moral authority that the Pacific brings to this debate. We've seen that expressed by way of poetry and song and other, you know, and imagery with some really powerful photos. And now what we've seen is that there's another pot of resources, which is the intellectual strength that these students have brought and their scholarship and their energy so it's a really it's a really important way to demonstrate to the rest of the world that the Pacific is not an empty space with no resources or no no capacity to achieve things that there are committed energetic extremely well qualified people across a range of spheres that have a lot to offer and can achieve great things as we've seen and we have to remember that no part of the world is more afflicted 
by climate change in the Pacific because, uh, well, so many islands will be inundated by a rising ocean and, uh, of course, we've seen the increasing impact of uh, cyclones and floods and other natural disasters. Well, that's right. I mean, I'm here in Port Vila in Vanuatu, and a, a month ago, um, the country was affected by two Category 4 cyclones within the space of about 48 hours, which is something that is more or less unheard of. But, you know, and, and even though there's been a lot of cleaning up and a lot of things are back to normal, the impacts of those disasters on people's psyche and on people's energy levels, as well as on the infrastructure and the vegetation, is still very obvious to me. Tess, um, in other business, in the district, a couple of other brave young people have taken a stand on the southernmost island of Vanuatu. That's right. So this is, uh, you know, one of, you know, great, great to be here and pick up these stories as I'm moving around and talking to people. But apparently during one of the HMAS Canberra's final missions to Anaitum, which is the southernmost island of Vanuatu, to take some response efforts and some uh, aid Two young, two school girls, I think they were both girls from that community, stood up and as, as well as saying thank you very much for what they've been given, they also used that opportunity to speak up very bravely and very assertively to say what we really need from Australia is for you to stop opening new coal mines and, and uh, you know, digging more fossil fuels out of the ground because this is what is driving climate change. This is what is driving, as you've just said, Philip, increased cyclones and increased severity of cyclones. So quite a, a, a very a significant break from protocol in terms of Vanuatu culture for young people to say something quite so challenging. Some, of the, some of the local chiefs must have been a bit put out. I think so. I think they felt that it was, you know, not necessarily good manners but I think these young people, and we've just heard from other young people, this is the generation that's saying, you know, we can't just carry on doing things the way we've always done. We need to be trying different things. And that might include being bad-mannered on occasion when it can be done to good effects. To hell with good manners, it's good politics. Now, um, Tess, there's been an earthquake in PNG this week, a, a remote area, so it's hard to get any sort of picture, but some deaths reported? Yeah, it looks like there have been a number of deaths reported, a small number at the moment, but given what we've seen before in these situations, as the communications come back online and there's more information, I think, you know, we are expecting that the death toll may increase. It seemed to affect a very large area, all areas of all the areas of East Seapik. It is remote. Communications are limited. And the, the authorities of NPNG have already said that they don't think they're going to have sufficient resources and logistical assets to be able to respond to themselves. So they may be needing some assistance. Well, it was a 7.1 earthquake. That is quite a powerful one. It is. And obviously, aftershocks ongoing. And, and I think, you know, People have lost their houses and also people are just frightened, you know, when the earth's moving under your feet, it can be very discombobulating, as I'm sure you can imagine. So, Vanuatu, having a, an airline problem. Yeah, so I did manage to get here at the weekend. A lot of people didn't. Air Vanuatu has got some quite serious issues. There have been a lot of ongoing issues with Air Vanuatu in terms of financial but also this is an engineering problem. So they're waiting for parts to come from uh, the, the, I think, Boeing in the States. And so until those parts are available to put into the plane, the plane is grounded Air Vanuatu just has the one 737 jet. So it's a big, you know, it's it's really kind of put a real damper on things for people here. You know, it's, it's the Easter holidays. People were wanting to go away. People were expecting family and friends to come visit. So it's, yeah, it's been very disruptive. Easter, of course, is a big event in the Pacific, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, you know, as we know, the, the Christianity is very much uh, a big part of life and culture in the Pacific. So, yes, people are looking forward to the, the weekend and there'll be church services and, and also big family gatherings. Put it all together and it must be uh, a considerable embarrassment to the government who will be copying most of the blame. 
Yeah, so the, there is a, a lot of pushback to the government, a lot of, you know, on social media and just in general talking talking in coffee shops and cover bars about what is the government doing. And there needs to be more than just a band-aid fix for this, that there really does need to be a meaningful intervention to get this critical communications line back on track. Just finally, ABC TV is launching a brand new show called The Pacific. It starts on Thursday night, and here's a promo. Tala for lover, I'm Talia Olatia. The Pacific region is rich with culture and people and stories, and now there's a new way to stay in touch with everything that is going on. From island to island and across the sea, a brand new weekly series covering local news, sports and events. Connecting you like never before to a region we call home. Tess, do you approve? Is this welcome? Oh, look, Philip, I have bored endless people to tears uh, banging on about the need for there to be more Pacific content on the ABC and across the ABC and across the Australian media more generally. So I think it's great to see that we will have this content. It's fabulous to see some of the best talent from the Pacific being featured and given this platform. I'm really looking forward to seeing the content that they'll bring. Um, and I would also point out to Philip that we're currently via the Walkley Institute. We are seeking for people, journalists, to put forward their bids for the Sean Dorney Grant for Pacific Journalism, which is another little way that we use to get Australian journalists out into the region to find out what's going on and bring back some excellent stories. Josh, will you be tuning in? Uh, definitely, I think this is a this is a platform that um, the Pacific has been demanding, um, either vocally or not at all. But uh, it is something that is uh, needed, just in terms of uh, having their voices heard, and of course uh, appear appearing to a, a larger audience than usual. Um, yes, I think I'm all for it. To be honest, yes. Excellent, and I thank you both. We've been talking to our old friend Tess Newton-Kane, Project Lead for the Pacific Hub at Griffith Asia Institute, and see you are the Kone, who is Vice President of Pacific Island Student Fighting Climate Change, and we congratulate him on his great success. Coming up is Germany, the birthplace of the motor car, resisting the electric vehicle revolution. Germany has such a long, proud history of uh, automobile production, going right back, of course, to Daimler and Benz and their early motor carriages. Many regard the internal combustion engine as uh, Germany's greatest invention. Now, today, Germany remains uh, Europe's largest producer of cars by orders of magnitude, but the industry has been forced as the world uh, quickly moves towards electric vehicles, has been forced to adapt. Now, last week, the EU Parliament signed off on laws which will ban the sale of new fossil fuel-powered cars and vans from 2035. But at the last minute, Germany won an exemption to allow cars running on so-called e-fuels to be sold beyond that date. It's a move that uh, has been condemned by environmental groups and uh, European neighbours. Alex Keynes is a former European parliamentary advisor and the clean vehicle policy manager at advocacy group Transport and Environment, and he joins me from Brussels. Alex, let's start with this uh, ban. The, um, so we've got petrol and diesel on death row and the execution is to be carried out in 2035. Yes. Hi, hi Philip. Uh, yeah, good, good to be here. Yeah, so absolutely. Um, the EU has now finally, after the kind of last weeks uh, we've had of, of drama around this, uh, this e-fuels uh, question, uh, the EU has finally now signed off on... Um, on the new CO2 standards that car makers now have to uh, have to comply with, have to have to meet up to 2035. And in 2035, as you say, 
uh, it is the uh, the end of new sales of combustion engine cars. Um, so absolutely, from from 2035 onwards, car makers will have to um, have to meet 100 percent CO2 reduction target for all their new new cars put on the market, which which basically means no more no more ICE, no more no more engine cars. Of course, you'll still be able to resell your old motor car after 2035. Absolutely, this doesn't affect uh, cars already on the on, on on the road, and any cars sold up till twenty thirty five. Um, so, absolutely, there'll still be um, car, cars on the road that you know, of course, uh, are using fossil fossil petrol and diesel, and, and that's very much the reason for the twenty thirty five date. Is we need to get to um, as many vehicles as possible are on the road to be zero emission by twenty fifty, which is the date uh, the EU is committed to becoming climate neutral. Now, Germany has set some standards in other areas for uh, you know, environmental advances, and yet here they are pushing back against this ban in the EU Parliament, and they've negotiated this uh, well, this exemption. Mm. Tell me about it in brief. <laughs> it is. I'll, I'll do my best. It is a very technical and complicated issue, uh, but absolutely. So. What Germany, and firstly, I should say that this has really become a bit of a domestic political sideshow. Their one junior partner in the German coalition government, so the the the, the Liberal Party, has been uh, has created this 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 last minute objection by by the German government, um, and have yet pushed for and successful successfully to a certain extent won um, an exemption for fossil fuel uh, for for engine cars being fueled after 2035 on purely on climate neutral e-fuels and this of course the details of this exemption and this potential loophole need to be worked out it seems to me that these e-fuels sound a bit like <clears throat> the carbon capture nonsense would you explain to uh, the listener what e-fuels actually are yeah absolutely so so e stands for electro uh, otherwise also known as uh, synthetic fuels it's probably a, a better way of of actually describing them so synthetic fuels are made are produced by firstly by by producing hydrogen um and then combining this hydrogen with with co2 um and they are chemically the same almost the same as fossil fuels and can be blended together um, and uh, and that is actually part of the problem because the engine of the vehicle doesn't know whether it's being fueled with fossil petrol or or synthetic petrol. But of course, this uh, this loophole starts to become more problematic when how how do you control what the driver is putting in their car if it's putting if they're putting in synthetic petrol or fossil petrol? The other the other issue is of course that actually when you burn. Uh, these e fuels in in, a, in an engine, they still emit the same amount of CO two as, as fossil. Now, let me understand this. They're purportedly going to be generated using renewable energy sources like solar or wind. That's correct. So the only way that these fuels can be actually considered uh, by, you know, as, 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 as is claimed by their proponents as climate neutral, is if you actually produce the hydrogen needed for the fuel using only 100 uh, percent renewable energy. So exactly high, um, solar or, or wind powered. Uh, and in, in addition, you would need to capture the CO2 from the air, um, which is where your, your link around to carbon capture comes from. So you, you would need to capture this, this from the air from a technology known as direct air capture, which is an incredibly expensive and currently not commercially viable. Is it technology. possible to scale this technology up to, to make a significant contribution? Well... Look, any technology can become viable or scaled if it has enough uh, political and financial support. The question is really, should we be spending our our, our, our money and our, and our um, renewable energy, our scarce renewable energy on this uh, technology? And, and our answer is 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 a is a flat no um and i'll, I'll tell you why as briefly as possible uh, it is incredibly energy inefficient to make synthetic fuels you need around four to five times the amount of renewable energy assuming you're using renewable energy uh four to five times as much energy that you would need to actually directly electrify a car with a battery so if you're thinking about you know renewable energy we need to decarbonize the grid to decarbonize other sectors of the economy the last thing we should be doing is using this scarce resource to actually 
inefficiently create fuels for, for, for a sector which can rely on, on direct electrification. We actually need these synthetic fuels for other sectors of the of the transport system, for example, shipping and aviation, which do not have the same possibilities, at least in the short term, through through direct electrification via batteries uh, for, 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 for different reasons. So actually by using or wasting these, these fuels in cars, you're actually sucking precious renewables out from the rest of the economy and, and putting a risk decarbonizing other sectors of the economy. So it really is a, a, a terrible idea. According to your analysis, by 2035, there'll be only be enough uh, e-fuel to power 2% of the cars on the road. Yeah, and, and this assumes that actually uh, these fuels are used for cars on the road, which actually would be a better idea than using them in new cars. Um, if this is as if Germany gets its way, and the details still need to be worked out on, on, on this, but if Germany gets its way and, and e-fuels are used in new cars, this is only going to offset uh, sales of zero emission cars we would have got otherwise, so battery electric or, or, or fuel cell hydrogen, and actually deprive cars already on the road of potential uh, uh, um, e-fuels, which actually can help those cars decarbonize. So, um, in any case, our analysis shows that this is going to be an incredibly niche solution, incredibly uh, tiny proportion of, of fuels available on the market. And so really the key message here is let's, this is a costly distraction when we're talking about cars. And let's actually make sure that we're investing and scaling up this costly technology for the sectors that need them, which is shipping, aviation and, and heavy industry. Now, this last-minute intervention from Germany suggests that there's some very powerful lobbying at play because, uh, well, does the German car industry have that sort of clout? So, I uh, maybe uh, will clarify a bit that absolutely there has uh, been some very heavy and powerful lobbying going on, but actually it's not been done by the German car industry. Counterintuitively, the German car industry, or at least the majority of the car makers that you would associate with Germany, so Volkswagen, Audi, uh, for example, these car makers have no interest in synthetic e-fuels. They are fully committed to going 100% electric even earlier than 2035. Audi is committed by 2030, Volkswagen by 2032. Um, it is actually the oil and gas sector who is behind the lobbying, because, of course, it's in their interest that they get to keep fueling uh, the current cars um, uh, and, and the future cars um, with, with fossil, tech, uh, fossil fuels or e-fuels, because, of course, it's still going to be the same oil and gas um, uh, companies that are refining these e-fuels these e with, the with the same infrastructure. Um, and, of course, as I said at the start, um, cars don't know if they're being fueled with synthetic fuels or fossil fuels. So this actually just opens up a massive loophole for the oil and gas sector to continue selling their products on, on a market. Now, another country famous for its cars is Italy, and they joined Germany in pushing back against the uh, 2035 deadline. Yeah, so this is uh, for slightly different reasons. Actually, what happened in Italy was there was, um, uh, over the... Um, the, the the last recent months there was a change in government and um, uh, a, a very right wing uh, many would say hard right far right government was elected um, in Italy which had campaigned on on the pledge to actually oppose this 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 ban on ICE cars or in engine cars so um, actually Italy's reasoning for doing so was slightly different to Germany's whereas Germany um, wanted to carve out this, this loophole for synthetic fuels, Italy was more concerned around carving out a loophole for biofuels where their, um, their uh, industry is slightly um, is, 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 is known to be a leader in. And of course, in any case, Italy wanted to maintain uh, fossil cars going forward anyway. Um, however, this, 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 uh, this government, the Italian government push was, was not as successful and, and this has been rejected so far. This isn't the first time that Germany has uh, thwarted EU efforts on transport emissions. Back in 2019, no, 2013, yes, Angela indeed. Merkel argued against higher fuel efficiency standards, didn't she? Yeah, she did. So we have been here before, and even though many have been saying this is an unprecedented move by Germany, uh, we have been here before, also with Germany, and also on car CO2 or fuel efficiency standards. Um yeah, we we had hoped that now with the the new German government in with this uh, uh, um, 
liberal, green and socialist uh, coalition that, you know, we thought this government might be more progressive, which it had been up to a point. Um, but then, as I said, this the junior liberal coalition partner decided to um, blow up the whole deal at the last minute to protect some of their voters' uh, more kind of narrow interests. But absolutely, um, Angela Merkel did play similar tactics uh, back in 2013. As I'm sure you know, Australia has been very slow in the take-up of electric cars, and uh, it's only now we're seeing some policy changes to encourage them. So clearly we're going to see a lot more electric vehicles on our roads and on Europe's. So will there be enough charging stations to keep everyone on the move? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a good question. And the famous uh, chicken and egg uh, uh, scenario where, you know, those... Are- opposed to the rollout of electromobility or trying to um, undermine its viability, always question whether there's enough charges. And actually, uh, the EU has just passed um, a complementary regulation um, that actually will ensure um, that they basically EU governments are forced to build um, enough charging infrastructure that actually rises in line with the uptake of electric vehicles. And this is written into the the new regulation. Um, So basically, charging anxiety will become a thing of the past um, as governments will be legally required to ramp up the infrastructure. Now, the big car makers will be keep making uh, petrol and diesel-powered cars Mm. for those countries that are still buyers outside Mm. of Europe. Does Australia, finally, do we risk becoming a dumping ground for these uh, dirty vehicles? Well, there's certainly that risk. Um, I mean, the EU law does not stop EU car makers from from making uh, uh, new polluting cars. Of course, they'll be able to still ex- export these to any governments that, that wants them, as, as, as you said. Um, so absolutely, um, there is always the risk that um, Australia, along with other regions um, who don't keep pace with the uh, ambition on, on electrification and CO2 reduction, um, can become a dumping ground, as you say, for, for the dirtier polluting models. Um, it is good news that this the new Australian government is is looking into setting new fuel efficiency standards, which of course could prevent Australia from becoming that dumping ground and making sure that car makers, whether they're European or or wherever, um, are are only uh, exporting the cleanest models. Of course, electric cars aren't a silver bullet, and one hopes there'll be a, a continuing move back to public transport. Alex, thanks for coming on. I've been talking to Alex Keynes, a, a former advisor to the EU Parliament and the Clean Vehicle Policy Manager at Transport and Environment. That's a, a clean energy advocacy group based in Brussels. Good on you, Alex. Coming up, we take a journey down the Silk Road. Well, beloved listeners, in the over 30 years I've been sitting here, we must have done a dozen programs on the Silk Road, so-called. It's Well, it's just so damned evocative. Exotic places, colourful bazaars and uh, personalities from Marco Polo to Joanna Lumley. But uh, the thing is, there is no one Silk Road. It's a concept. And it's one that various players have adopted and adapt for their own ends, including China in contemporary times with its uh, Belt and Road Infrastructure Program. Professor Tim Winter has been looking at all of this for his book, The Silk Road, Connecting Histories and Futures. Tim is a senior research fellow at the Asia Institute at the National University of Singapore. Tim, welcome to the Little Wireless Program. And, uh, Good evening, a, Philip. Very nice to be with you. Tim, there's a, um, a Silk Road singular and Silk Roads plural. Please explain. Indeed. It's, it's actually a surprisingly difficult concept to get around. So my book is, is tracing the biography of the term and how it's evolved in the modern era. And really, it's a, it's a term that's 
become popular, particularly since the end of the Cold War, as an account of Eurasian pre-modern history. Now, we know that there are countless regional, trans-regional and trans-oceanic connections that stretch back century and millennia, uh, primarily across the seas and oceans that surround Eurasia and across the Eurasian landmass itself. And so what the Silk Road, Silk Road does is bring those together under an evocative a narrative and story of connectivity around certain themes such as silk and porcelain and Buddhism and so forth, depending on which part of the world you're thinking of the Silk Road. And obviously what we've seen is it, it becomes represented through these distinct uh, lines that are drawn on maps, whether it's the Maritime Silk Road or the Overland Silk Road. Nonetheless, you do draw us a, a geographic and historical picture of where and when it started. Indeed, but again, I would say that's much, much more complicated than it first seems in the sense that the term was invented in the 1870s by a German geologist, uh, Ferdinand von Richthofen, but it didn't really enter popular culture in Europe and North America until the 1930s. And so the popular imaginary of the Silk Road in the in the European imaginary, in the Western imaginary more broadly, is that it tra- it's from Venice or southern uh, or, or Rome, so southern um, Europe, across to China. But if you look at it from uh, other parts of the region, so for example from India or Japan, they tell very different stories of what the Silk Road encompassed as a concept and as an idea of historical connections. And so for Japan, for example, the Silk Road as a story travels right across to cities such as Nara. And for India and Sri Lanka, it's it's another story of South-North connections from the subcontinent up into East Asia. So the ways in which it's been understood and and the ways it has expanded over the course of the 20th century has has very much changed and evolved, depending on who gets involved in the story, who funds projects. And it's those types of things that I've kind of traced in the book. Well, Well, we'll look at those in detail a little later, but my read of the book has you dating dating the, the concept back to the two centuries, either side of the beginning of the Christian era. Well, that's the, that's the framing that this Fernand von Richthofen offered. So he was a he was a geologist who was in northwest China in the 1870s, and he was a mapping uh, and surveying for a potential railway line that could be built to carry coal from northwest China, where there were coal deposits, across to an industrialising Europe, in particular Germany. He was interested in history and drawing on some European and Chinese sources. He identified some trade networks, and it certainly was not one simple line. There was networks between different market towns that then stretched across different regions that were primarily about that period that you've just mentioned, those two centuries after, uh, around the beginning of the Christian era. So there were links between sort of Rome and the Middle East, as it is today, and then onwards to China. And that's where he, uh, how he understood the term. So he published a a series of five volumes uh, under the title China and used the term um, in one of the volumes in, within a chapter, but it was not really picked up. And it was only in the 1930s was when a number of other things really developed, including um, one of his students who wrote more popularly, um, that the term started to really enter um, popular culture. And this was a time when Marco Polo was becoming popular in Europe. But don't forget that Marco Polo doesn't travel to the late 19th century, so 1271. So the, so the idea that we have now as Marco Polo being the quintessential Silk Road traveller is part of that interesting idea that we have this one one and a half thousand years almost of continuous connectivity that's that's really grouped together under this one narrative of the silk road and what that does is really erase the complexities of of piracy of warfare of empires and bloodshed and it presents this history of eurasian connectivity in a very sort of aesthetically uh, nostalgic way and, and a story of harmony and cross-cultural dialogue and intercultural relations, etc., that really doesn't deal with the more difficult histories of Asia or Eurasia more broadly. Of course, Hollywood helped uh, promote Marco Polo, didn't it? That's right, exactly. So he, he, his text and the travels that uh, is passed down through the centuries is only really seen as a historical uh, valuable document in the late 19th century. And so he re-enters uh, scholarship during that period through various translations, in particular through a volume by Henry Yule in the UK, and then in the 1920s, he gets picked up by, uh, as you say, Hollywood and also uh, writers, journalists who were writing for National Geographic, who were also traveling up to Central Asia. Those those regions um, that are today, Northwest China, Mongolia, 
who are very much depicting their travels and their journeys as retracing the footsteps of Marco Polo. So what happens in that period is that's when this idea of Marco Polo's travels and this these trade networks at the beginning of the Christian era become folded together into this grand story of the Silk Road. And then, of course, through the 20th century, it, it starts to include other places and other regions. Um, so now we have the idea of the Maritime Silk Road as well. Well, get on to the Maritime one a little later, but uh, remind us about the, well, remind the young, the younger listener what the world was like during the Cold War, how the East and West were viewed. Indeed, that's and that's quite an interesting aspect of this story that obviously what you're referring to is these uh, geopolitical divides between East and West. And it was not the East and West of Europe and Asia as it was in the 19th century. It was, it was a Soviet East and the, and the bloc of the Soviet Union against a capitalist West. And so that story of Eurasian connectivity was not really working as a narrative of history, both in whether it's academia or international policy for organizations such as UNESCO or in international um, organizations. So when that comes to an end in the late 1980s um, and the, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, we have a new narrative and, and uh, political scientists wrote about the end of history because capitalism had won. And so we, ha- we move into this, this new moment of globalization. And so globalization as a way to think about the contemporary moment of the 1990s also needed its own history. And that's again where this Silk Road narrative of connections and and trade links, etc., becomes popular. So I mentioned that it enters popular culture in the 1930s, but it's only until the really uh, early 1990s that it really sort of uh, reaches that level of global fame by which you refer to that sort of evocative imaginary of history that is so popular today and so well known. My guest is uh, Professor Tim Winter. His book is The Silk Road, Connecting Histories and Futures from Oxford University Press. We uh, talked last week in our Asian update to uh, Bruce Pannier about the uh, current strategic importance of uh, Central Asia. So it's a story that constantly is re-energised. Indeed, exactly. And that's a nice link into thinking about how the Silk Road is about building futures. So so to connect that point to what I was just saying, the 1990s is also that moment where Central Asia re-enters international affairs. And so a number of countries, including the United States, South Korea, Japan, see that they have strategic interests in Central Asia, primarily because it's a place of connectivity and infrastructure building of pipelines and so on and so forth. And that happens again after 9-11 for the United States, countries such as Afghanistan, obviously. So the Silk Road becomes a, a term that gets used for, for foreign policy architectures and the idea of the new Silk Roads and that becoming kind of uh, conceptualized through ideas of pipelines, et cetera, that are transboundary, transregional and connecting countries and connecting regions. And that's you where you mentioned earlier well. UNESCO and in the early 1900s, UNESCO picks up the idea of the road at the end of the Cold War. Correct, exactly. So so that happens for a decade or so where UNESCO, starting in 1988, they see this as a very productive way to think about promoting ideas of East-West peaceful relations. And as I mentioned earlier, that's the end of the Cold War. So, so for UNESCO, which is the UN body for education, science and culture, and their mandate is very much around promoting intercultural dialogue, peace and harmony between regions, this was a, a story of history and trade exchange, the, the flow of ideas, the flow of technologies, the flow of cultures across regions that they saw as a very productive way to try and reduce the suspicions and the mistrust that built up during the Cold War. So this was a project that spanned a whole decade and, and involved exhibitions all around the world, publications, museum exhibitions, um, media projects, so on and so forth, and and a number of expeditions, and in, including a six-month voyage where the Sultan of Oman lent his his only troop carrier, the Folk al-Salama, um, the ship of peace as it translates, to the United Nations, and that left Venice in 1991 and sailed through the Suez Canal across the Indian Ocean and up to East Asia with a series of uh, academics and journalists on board that were writing up stories of these of these pre-modern stories of maritime connectivity. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a really interesting way to rethink those histories at that moment. And it's all over the UNESCO website again, thanks to... Uh, Indeed. You yeah. know, thanks to China's agenda, and we'll come to that a little later. So, 
late 20th century globalisation. You mentioned it, but it's so central to your um, to your book. Indeed, yes. I mean, that's very much uh, a moment where uh, a number of organisations uh, involved in intergovernmental and international policy were having to rethink how they rebuild relations uh, at, a, at a more cross-regional international level after the end of the Cold War. Academics were rethinking how they think about world history. Political scientists were rethinking about and social scientists were rethinking about what was happening in the world at that time. So that's where this Silk Road really does take off as, a, as an idea. And also even down to things like museum exhibitions, where they had these artifacts and frescoes and manuscripts that were all collected from northwest China in the late 19th century. And this became a moment where these could be displayed and, and tell the story of this of this Silk Road that was uh, obviously amenable to popular audiences at that time. Tim, I have to thank you for reminding me of the term the global village, the idea of a, of a flat world to explain the uh, this sort of planet of connectivity and uh, opportunity reinforced by new technologies. Yes, except I, I'm I'm not so sure that that's really uh, the most productive way to think about what's happening, particularly today, obviously, with with the, I mean, the digital divides that we're seeing. Um, so we're seeing that through um, the digital Silk Road, as it's called, which is part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. But where we were in the 1990s and those ideas of globalization, it seems like we're in a very different place right now, particularly as we come out of COVID and those debates around whether we are entering a new Cold War moment. And obviously, that's a complicated issue to think about. But there certainly seems to be new alliances and new alignments. And so, so what China's done with this Belt and Road Initiative is set up a, a cooperation architecture, which by various counts involves 70 to 90 countries and, uh, and, and straddles right across the Eurasian landmass, various seas and oceans, connecting up countries as far as Italy and, and then Greece, down East Africa, down to the southern parts of, uh, uh, of Africa, and building a regional architecture that really kind of uh, um, works across multiple sectors, whether it's infrastructure, health, education, tourism, um, energy infrastructures and logistics infrastructures through shipping and so on and so forth. And that's their idea of reviving the Silk Roads for the 21st century. What was the impact of 9-11 on the concept? Oh, that's an interesting point. That obviously put uh, Central Asia and countries such as Afghanistan and Pakistan very much back on the radar of, of particularly for, obviously for, for the United States, but most Western countries thinking about the rise of Islamic fundamentalism. And so in 2002, shortly after 9-11, there was a Silk Road exhibition in what is potentially, I would say, the most strategically or geopolitically important public space, which is the Washington Mall, uh, that was put on during that summer to raise awareness partly. I mean, it was, pre, it was pre-planned before 9-11, um, but, it, but it was a, a strategically important moment where the US was uh, re-engaging with a part of the world that it had certainly neglected for decades. So it became also picked up by other organizations or, or somewhere, including countries such as Iran, to say that the Middle East is not just about Islamic fundamentalism. It's not just about terrorism. There's a whole other way in which we need to think about Islam as a peaceful historical culture that has um, had exchanges and connections across um, various regions and, and countries stretching back centuries. So the Silk Road plays its interesting uh, role in, in, in both geopolitical and, and kind of geocultural connections that were forming during that period. Europe and East Asia were also thinking about trade and energy security and tourism. Indeed, yeah. So that exactly, and that's one part of the story I haven't mentioned is that yes, indeed, tourism starts really opening up. And you mentioned um, uh, Joanna Lumley at the beginning, and and those types of media personalities that really have contributed to popularising Central Asia. But where that's uh, what we might think about in terms of um, that being a European or Australian or American tourism market, where it really started was Japanese tourists going to Central Asia, because they they saw that as part of their civilizational geography. And that was what was promoted in, in Japan after the Second World War. The Silk Road was a, was a way to think about how Japan was connected to Asia and, and an attempt to repair relations with, with both China and Southeast Asia at that time. Tim, you mentioned earlier the Maritime Silk Road. Uh, please explain. Indeed. So, so that's a, a, a concept and a term that uh, the historians now are truly trying to work through how that term has emerged in the 20th century. That 
doesn't uh, have the same longevity that the overland Silk Road, that's a term that dates back to the 1870s. It gets picked up uh, by Japanese researchers in the 1950s, which I brief, briefly mentioned then that they are trying to think about they how they rebuild bridges back with uh, with other countries in Asia. And so what they talk about, those scholars, and they, and they, they work with UNESCO under some different projects to suggest that there were these pre-modern connectivities of East and West that were not just between northern China and, and Europe, but also between different parts of Japan, Southeast Asia, Central Asia. And so they start to talk about things like the Buddhist Silk Road or the, or the <laughs> route of the sea. And this gets picked up by the UNESCO in the 1980s. China is very much buying into this idea of a maritime Silk Road because this tells the story of Chinese connections to Southeast Asia and across the Indian Ocean. So that becomes a popular term there. And it really sort of takes off in the 2000s, but really, really achieves this global recognition because of the Belt and Road Initiative, which in its original definition was called One Belt, One Road, referring to like those those two routes, the, the overland and the maritime Silk Road. And of course, the notion puts uh, China at the centre of world history. That's what I wrote and thought through in a previous book to this one, which was called Geocultural Power, which was published in 2019, was the ways in which a lot of people and a lot of academics talk about the Belt and Road Initiative as a geopolitical or geoeconomic project. And I saw it as a geocultural project with the Silk Road being this geocultural imaginary of history in a way that when China takes over the authorship of this term, it very much places China at the center of world history, as you suggest, in the sense that China was connected overland to Central Asia, onto Europe, down to South Asia, Sri Lanka, so on and so forth but across various seas and, and ocean geographies that stretch across to East Africa and right through to the Mediterranean. So what happens in Belt and Road is that what Chinese diplomats and projects and, and organizations go into countries such as Greece, suggesting that you're not a European civilization, only you're also an Asiatic civilization. You were, we were connected centuries ago by the, by the Silk Roads, and you should join the Belt and Road Initiative. So that was a type of diplomatic discourses that languages that um, China was using, has been using since Belt and Road was launched in 2013. My guest has been the erudite Professor Tim Winter from the National University of Singapore. His book, The Silk Road, Connecting Histories and Futures, published uh, by Oxford University Press. On our next, the people who've spent their lives amongst illuminated manuscripts spanning the last 1,000 years. And you won't believe this, but the story of how uh, forbidden music was recorded on X-rays in the Soviet Union during the Cold War. See you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listener.